Church, we're, uh, we're starting a brand new series here at Encounter called What's the Point of Church? And I just want to give you a little bit of, uh, of my heart in this series and why I think it's, uh, it's so incredibly important for us to examine this all together. Uh, I love the church so incredibly much. In fact, I love the church and how uh, we've been so effective in connecting people uh, to Jesus that I've decided it's my life's calling to invest into the church. I, I love this church. I love just church in general. If you are brand new to Encounter and you're only passing through and you have somewhere else that you call your church home, I probably love that church too. I think, it's, I think it's great. It's not just a good idea, it's a God idea. And we can see that because there is no earthly reason why the church should continue to exist. We're all broken, infallible. This thing should have ended centuries ago, yet God in his good grace keeps pushing, sometimes pulling us forward into his preferred future. I love it. But the church has also been through a monumental amount of transformation and change, especially over the last couple of years. So I think it's a, like a good uh, stopping point, a check-in to say, listen, as we're kind of reevaluating everything, like what's the point anyway? What's the point of church? And so we begin by just identifying a few things that the church isn't. Uh, the church isn't, the point of the church is not to, to meet friends and to develop a, a social group. Although if you hang out at a church for long enough, this church for long enough, you probably will develop a social group and some friends as a result. In fact, as couples uh, and, and individuals uh, get sent out from here because maybe they graduated from college and unfortunately they decided to move away from West Michigan, I don't get it. We have beautiful weather all the time. <laughs> but as they go out, one of the pieces of advice that I make sure to give is listen. You have to be a part. In, in fact, as you're searching for an apartment, as you're searching for a place to live, make sure that you also search out a church to find because it's that place that you can identify true community and you can't do life alone. I, I love the idea that church is a place that we can develop these meaningful relationships. But the point of church isn't, to, isn't just to make friends. The point of church isn't just to meet your one, to meet your husband or wife, even though even though that happens around here a lot of the time, sometimes even on the worship team, like, like they, you know, couple up that way. But the point of church isn't to meet the one or your one. The, the, point, of, the point of church isn't to build out a client list or a business portfolio or, or to develop uh, a new network of potential customers. The, the point of church, and this one's tough, the point of church isn't just to provide a moral education for your kids, which is an which is an actual comment that I've heard uh, quite a few times of people kind of coming through of like, hey, what are you doing here? You know, it's a, are you new? Is this the first time? Do you have some church in your background? And the answer quite often is like, well, you know, I'm not sure about this whole thing, but I really want a moral education for my kids. And I have to find a way to like thread this needle well because that's a, that's a terrible reason uh, for coming to uh, any church, especially this church, because we love our kids' ministry. I believe in it wholeheartedly. But the point of our kids', kids ministry is not, is not like a moral education. In fact, on a weekly basis, we actually tell kids, it doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how much you've lied or stolen or sinned. You listen, you have a father in heaven who loves you to death and back again to new life. Coming to church for a moral education for your kids is a terrible reason to come to church because we keep telling them you can be as bad as you possibly can be and Jesus still loves you. The church doesn't exist 
to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive again in Jesus. Sometimes there's like this holiness that comes as a result of God's presence and spirit inside of us. And we hope to see that that's the case. But that's also, again, not the point of church. We get into this series, what's the point of church? And there's a lot about church. So I thought it'd be helpful if we kind of separated it into these separate categories, these four categories for four parts. These are kind of the, the big pillars, the build, big building blocks uh, of at least how Encounter does church together. And if you were part of our Vision Weekend uh, several weeks ago, we outlined these in the courageous next step. So we ask everybody uh, to take their next step into. That's worshiping weekly and, and serving wholeheartedly. Uh, it's grouping with other Christians intentionally to grow in some particular area and to give sacrificially. And so these are the, each of the categories, worship, serve, group, and give. Today, in part one of the series, we're talking about why in the world, what is the point of worship? And to enter into that question, I'd like to share a story that just kind of reflects on how you don't really know how much you depend on something until it goes missing. So for example, I was hanging out at a friend's cottage, which is the best kind of cottage, by the way, a friend's cottage. It's like a boat or a pool. Like, I don't want a boat. I don't want a pool. I want a friend with a boat or a pool. So text me afterwards. I'm hanging out, <laughs> I'm hanging out at, a, at a friend's cottage and, uh, and we, they've got one of these like docks and a trampoline on the water where like, uh, you know, it's an inflatable ring around it. And I go to the edge and I get all the kids, like nine kids under the age of 10. And it's like, okay, Pastor Dirk, I'm going to go hang out at the edge of the trampoline, like inflatable. And you guys all count of three, jump, land on the trampoline. I'm going to get rocketed in the air, you know, do a backward somersault. I have this whole thing planned out in my mind, totally forgetting nine kids all under the age of 10. All right, I, one, two, some kids jump. That didn't work. Three, the other kids jump. Four, the rest of the kids jump. It's like, what are, what are we even doing here? I'm playing along, you know, I fall backwards and I, I do my thing. And I come up out of the water and I can't see anything. And I'm freaking out. And I imagine that everybody on shore whom I can't see at all is also empathizing with me in my loss because I come up out of the water and my glasses didn't come up with me. And I freeze. And they have to be around here somewhere. And so I'm like, like digging my hands in the silty soil, just watching the vacation end before it even really began. Like my wife is going to have to drive me around everywhere. I can't play, I can't play games. I can't play catch. I'm gonna, ball's going to hit me in the face. I can't play board games. I can't see the dice. I can't read. I can't watch TV. I can do nothing totally totally and completely helpless. And I have these two realizations, these two moments of clarity in the darkness, right? As somebody like from shore calls, like, hey, do you want some goggles? And it's like, I can't see my alarm clock. Goggles are not the problem here, right? Two moments of clarity. Number one, how did these eyes survive the evolutionary like gene pool getting passed on? Makes no sense to me. Second thing, you don't really realize how much you depend on something until it goes missing. You don't really realize how much you depend on someone until they go missing. You don't realize that they're the one who always knew like exactly what to say. You don't realize that among everybody in the group chat, it was really just that one person who no matter what would text you back quickly every single time. You don't really realize until they go missing that there was the one that was always up for an adventure or always listening for just the wrong cue, the wrong tone in your voice and knew that something was off and I need to just come on over right now. There's one person who would just listen and to not say anything at all 
for minutes on end. You don't really realize how much you depend on someone until they go missing. The realization that we have, the point of worship is, listen, what we are engaged in is not a playground, this Christian life. It's a battleground. And that life is a battle. And like, we, we cannot, we cannot win this alone. Life is a battle. We can't win this alone. To that point, God tells us this incredible story in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 starts off, and without context, I'm just going to jump into the verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. All we have so far in the story is just an attack story. These guys came, the Amalekites came, and they attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Just a little bit more context uh, in this story. Exodus is written by Moses, and Exodus is a story about how God, God exited his people from from Egypt, from slavery, and, and exited them right on into the desert, into the wilderness, where they spent a season being shaped and formed before being brought into their, their destination, their promised land. Now, the Amalekites see these people, and there's thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people passing through, and that, that doesn't include the, the number of animals that they have as well. And we don't know why the Amalekites attack the Israelites, the God, God's people, God's chosen people at this point. Like, we don't know why. We don't know if it's just they felt threatened because these, these foreigners are, like, moving into their territory. We don't, we don't know if it, was, if it was the fact that Rephidim was, a, was an oasis in the desert, and you kind of picture this sand all the way around, and there was this one place where, where water, like, bubbled up from the ground, and so it was green, and it was lush, and there was shade. And they're like, listen, there's not enough shade. There's not enough water to go around, so, so we got to protect it. And so that's why they attacked kind of preemptively. Like, we don't know why the Amalekites attacked, but we do know something about how they attacked. Because the fun part, I think, about the Bible is that as a historical document, these stories are documented in multiple ways in multiple places. So, for example, the Jesus story, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is told, it's so important, it's told four different times from four different perspectives just to make sure that we didn't miss a thing. A lot of the stories, even in the Old Testament, are also written from different perspectives in different, in different seasons. And so we get an interesting insight into this story from different seasons. I'm going to kind of go out on a limb here, and I, I don't want to be quoted on this one, but Exodus as a book of the Bible is written by Moses, and it's written a lot like Twitter, or maybe like a blog or something. Like, again, don't quote me on that. It's, it's theologically indefensible, so I'm not going to stand behind that one at all. But what I just want you to hear is that is that Exodus is sort of written as the, as the events are unfolding. And Moses is like keeping this journal and keeping this record of everything that happens. So we kind of get the cold, hard facts. Well, that wasn't the only time this story was told. Because Moses also tells this story way later in the biblical book of Deuteronomy, which is not, which is not like Twitter. Like, it's not like keeping a blog at all in real time in the facts. No, no. Deuteronomy is written more like a memoir. Or Moses... He's on a mountain and he's looking over the mountain edge and he can see the land for 40 years that was promised to him and his ancestors. For 40 years they've been wandering in the desert eating manna and this crumbly like bread, just living hand to mouth day in and day out. And he's looking over the edge and he can see it's finally just about time to go in and he knows that he's not allowed in because of some disobedience. He knows that this is going to be the end of the line from him. And so Deuteronomy is like his memoir, his speech to the people before they go in, essentially saying, do not forget the lessons of the wilderness. Don't forget how God shaped you and formed you in this season and out. 
And he recalls some of the times. And in Deuteronomy 25, he comes to this story. And in Deuteronomy 25, we learn a little bit about what wasn't included in the Exodus telling of this story. In fact, the Israelites weren't just attacked at Rephidim by the Amalekites. The Israelites were attacked from the back of the group by the Amalekites. Which as Moses reflects on it in Deuteronomy, that's an important detail. Because it was a shameful way to attack. Because the Israelites were a, were a nomadic group. They were a marching group. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and stuff and cattle. And it's not soldiers, it's everybody. It's the entire people group. And so as they're marching through, who falls to the back? The weak. The injured. The elderly. The defenseless are the people who fall to the back of the group. And maybe there's a few leaders. Maybe there's a few courageous people who come along. But no, no, no. What they do in those moments is attack the weakest part of the group. Now, I want you to hang on to that for just a minute because it's going to be really important to recognize, recognize something. It's not just that we read the Bible that's important. Just as important that we read the Bible is how we read the Bible. And so we're going to kind of put on some lens about how to best read the Bible in this story in light of the story that God is telling in our lives. This story in light of our story. How to read the Bible. Because this isn't just a story that happened. This is a story that does happen. So what, is it, what does a story like that mean outside of a historical event? Well, God formed and shaped a people. That's the book of, that's the book of Genesis. The people found themselves enslaved to their own sin and bondage, Egypt. God rescued that through the blood of the lamb spread on the doorpost, the ten plagues. God brought them out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb that was shed in Jesus Christ once and for all. God found a way to bring us out of our sin and bondage. We're heading towards the promised land. We're heading towards the promise of heaven one day. But along the way, we get 40 years. We get a generation in the desert, in the wilderness. This life where God is shaping us, where God is forming us, where God is preparing us for eternity with him or apart from him. He's shaping us. He's forming us. We're we're in the desert. And while in the desert, an attack comes. That's why we can say things like life is a battle. But let's realize something. How we read the Bible is important. What does the attack, who is attacking us? New Testament, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against the Amalekite people or their descendants. Our struggle is not against another Middle Eastern people group. Our struggle is not against a cranky landlady who won't fix the ceiling fan. Our struggle is not an o against an overbearing boss. Our struggle is not against a nosy mother-in-law. I mean, it, kind, it might be. It, it kind of is, but... By and large, it, it isn't. That's, that's not the Bible. That's not that. So you might struggle with her, but spiritually, our struggle, Paul says in Ephesians 6, is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle, he says, God says through Paul, our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. We have a struggle. We can say that. And we might not be good at talking about it all the time, but we have to realize that we do have a common enemy. That Jesus spoke about a common enemy who came to seek and destroy and to harm and to separate us and cut us off from our Savior. And we recognize that in the story that we just read, that that enemy tends to come at us from reverse, 
tends to come at us when we're injured, when we're wounded, when we're already isolated from the rest of the pack, that our enemy tends to come at us when we are at our weakest. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We have a common enemy. Life is a battle. This story is about not fighting alone. We continue on in the next verse, in verse 9, where we find that Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, Moses said, I'll stand on top of the hill with a staff of God in my hands, a staff of God. Uh, Just a few lines, if you kind of scroll up in the story, a few lines earlier, Moses had just brought water out of a rock with that staff. So it's like the staff of God in my hands. I mean, it means something. Verse 10 So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her, that's a name, not a pronoun. Aaron and her is his name. Very confusing. I get it. Went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, because they got tired, the Amalekites were winning. Like, this is a quirky story, right? Like, it's kind of a weird story. Uh, God, in his wisdom, could have defeated the Amalekites any way he chose to, but, but instead, he chose this way. And it's our job, as readers of the Bible, not just that we read the Bible, but how we read the Bible, it's our job to ask, why this quirky way? Uh, hands are raised in the air, battle is winning. Hands go down, the battle is losing. What's What's the deal? There's been a lot of speculation. Some people write, well, obviously the staff was magical. It just brought water from a rock, open and closed case. Biblically, how we read the Bible, just as important as that we read the Bible, remember that miracles, signs and wonders, miracles are a signpost. They point to something. In fact, they point to someone. Anything miraculous that happens in the Bible points towards the goodness of God and his provision for us in Jesus Christ. So I don't think it's the point, it's the case that there's just like this magical staff with these special powers. That doesn't doesn't point to anything. Other people from kind of a humanist perspective kind of look at this and go, oh, it's the psychological boost that an army would get, right? Where they're engaged in battle and they see their fearless leader on the hill raising up his hands and it provides this kind of adrenaline boost that actually translates into victory like on the field below. It's like cheerleader effect. Like that's, that's where we're going with this. It's like you got to quit a cheerleader over there and that's what like gives you, gives you the boost. I, I've never played professional sports or been engaged in battle, but I just have to believe that you'd have a, a greater likelihood of winning whatever it is that you set out to do if you're actually paying attention to the match rather than what's happening on top of the hill, right? I mean, I don't think it's a psychological boost. If anything, it's got to be a... It's got to be a distraction to what's, going, to what's going on. The answer is probably the case that there's a well-documented Old Testament practice of praying with hands outstretched. That what's happening on the top of the hill isn't something magical, although it is miraculous. That God wanted to drill in and to reinforce, especially for us reading the story thousands of years later, that we're locked and engaged into this battle, but this battle isn't one on the valley below. This battle is one on the hill above. That as long as we are laying ourselves before, before our maker, before our God in a heart of worship, we have no chance of becoming victorious in the battle. 
And what Moses was doing on top of that mountain, what he was doing is, is praying. Now, we don't want to get into how we read the Bible. We don't want to get into the, the trap of like, well, there's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. And that's probably why Dirk asked us to like stretch out our arms as we bless the Harper family. No, no, no. We, we don't want to get into the, into the particulars on that one. The, 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 point, the point on this one is in the presence of God. I mean, Moses wasn't even using words in that prayer. But some of you guys know, like you don't always have to use words to worship God. Some of our most worshipful moments before the Lord were held in silence, basking in his power and in his goodness. Moses is on top of the mountain. He's got his arms raised in the air. He's got two people. He's got Aaron and her next to him, him and her next to him. And uh, we recognize that Aaron and his brother, her, ended up marrying Moses' sister Miriam. So that makes him his brother-in-law. And I just think it's this cool picture of the three of, the, three of these guys. That they're together. It's Moses and his brother and his brother-in-law on top of that mountain. And they're praying together and they're worshiping God together for victory in the, in the battle below. But there's a problem. The problem presents itself in verse 12. The battle took a little while. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and her brother and brother-in-law, held his hands up, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands remained steady till sunset. Verse 13, so Joshua overcame. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. It wasn't magic. It wasn't some kind of trick on on the mountain. It was God fighting a battle through a community. It was God bringing brother, brother-in-law, and Moses as the leader together to worship together, to pray together the entire duration on the Bible. You notice something about the battle, though. Um, my call of duty skills are a little uh, off on this one, but about fighting, right? We don't get like the the strategy of Joshua. We don't get like, well, you know, he did a frontal assault and then fr- flanked on the northeastern side. We don't, I have no idea what like any of those words even mean. I've never played Call of Duty in my life. But like, you notice that we don't get like any information about the battle itself, do we? I mean, we only find out that so Joshua overcame. It's like three words, that's it. We don't find out about anything that happened with the, with the battle because we... We stay with finding out what happens on top of the hill. And I just, I love that. Like as a takeaway for like me personally, and like you guys can listen in if you want, but for me, for me, I get so distracted with the fight that I forget who is fighting for me. I mean, that was good. Come on, guys, I'm going to preach that one one more time. I get, we get so distracted with the fight, we forget who is fighting for us. Where we go into these battles that we have time and time again, and we get so caught up in fighting the battle for us that we forget that we have a Joshua in the ring fighting on our behalf, doing for us what we couldn't do on our own. I mean, it's a couple of times now that I have asked you guys to like, hey, listen, pray for this little kiddo in our community, Jack. He's three years old, major brain surgery, and you don't know him. The vast majority of you, Kenwood, Fulton Heights, worshiping online, a few of you who are in Texas that watch every weekend, like, I see you. 
not literally, but like I've asked you guys, I've asked you guys to pray for this kiddo. You know, even though we're not going to meet him, you don't have to meet him and have your heart broken by this kid's story. Brain surgery at three years old. And, and I find myself getting caught up in the story like, well, who are the, who are the doctors and the medical team and, and why here and not there? Oh, hey, the guy like invented this surgery. No kid, right here in Michigan. That's, in, that's incredible. Now, what are they going to do, right, with his, with his brain, like separating these two hemispheres? I that's, can't believe our bodies can do that anymore. And that's, that's so wild how the, all of this works. And I get so caught up in like, the travel plan. How long do you plan on being away? And then when are you coming back? And like, what do you need after? We get so caught up. I get so caught up in the fight that I forget Like, who is fighting for us? Which is why I'm so incredibly encouraged when we're like going, okay, it's surgery, it's surgery day last week, Thursday. And it's like, this is a couple weeks, uh, Thursday. It's surgery day, we're we're gonna lift this kiddo up and his family in prayer. And what we did as a church, we're like, listen, we don't want to be distracted by the fight. We got to remember who is fighting for us, right? And it's not the doctors and the medical team. We know where our victory lies and we know with whom our victory lies. And so we're going to pray. We're going to raise up our hands, literally or figuratively, and we're going to go before God. We're going to worship him for what he has done and what he's about to do. We're going to pray. And I love this, that we put out like this prayer call with all these slots from like 5 a.m. down past 9 p.m., just a ton of these slots. And just watch as people fill them up. I'm so encouraged as a part of this community to watch like the 5 o'clock a.m. slot is one of the first that fills up. Like, you've got to be kidding me. What an encouragement. I love that so incredibly much. I love that 99 people signed up to pray for this kid on our prayer list. Like that's Moses, that's Aaron, and that's Ur, that's brother and brother-in-law coming together. And they might not have even met the people fighting in the battle down below, but it doesn't matter. We know with whom our victory lies. What we didn't know is that Jack's surgery was going to be even longer than planned on. We knew it was going to be a dozen hours or more. We didn't know that it was going to stretch for 22 hours. And the stories coming out of that was one particular gentleman in our community that, again, doesn't know Jack, hasn't met Jack, might not even meet Jack, just said, you know, the strangest thing happened. I woke up at 4 a.m. and I just felt this burden, this burden to lift up Jack in prayer having no idea that right around that time, the doctor's recognizing this is going to be a long one. We're still having surgery at 4 a.m. And the obedience of just saying, yes, God, I'll continue to pray, even though this thing should be over and done with, it's not yet. We know with whom our victory lies. The surgery is changed and adapted on the fly, as sometimes that happens. It was a successful surgery. 22 hours later, he's gaining some of that function back. We're going to keep on praying for Jack. But, but the point of this, guys, is let's not get, don't get distracted with the fight and forget, like, who is fighting for us? A victory, in this sense. Victory comes from the hill, not the battlefield. Now, I want to make a comment on Aaron and her. And I got to be careful on this one because I don't want you to lose where the lens should lie. So we're going to come back to Aaron and her in just a moment here. But, but I just, I, I want you to recognize like what's really happening here because it's so powerful. And I've preached on this one before and uh, it's almost pastoral malpractice, but I, but I missed it the first time around. And so I definitely got to drill it home on this time around. Verse 13, three words. So Joshua overcame. 
Moses had no idea what he was writing when he penned those little words, so Joshua overcame. Moses had no idea that he's writing in a language that would, be, that would be called later on Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, this ancient form of Hebrew. He had no idea that there would be all kinds of languages invented after that. He had no idea that one of the languages that would be invented would be Greek, and they would take the names from Old Testament Hebrew, this ancient words, and they'd update it and modernize it in this new language, Greek, and it would come with this new kind of meaning. He had no idea that he was writing that Joshua transliterated, Yeshua translated into Greek, Jesus. He would write down, so Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus overcame. He had no idea. He's thinking he's talking about like a battle of flesh and blood. And God's going, no, no. Through the inspiration of my Holy Spirit that unites our hearts to Jesus' hearts, to Moses' heart back then, what you're actually saying is Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus overcame not just flesh and blood. No, no, no. So much bigger than against all the powers of spiritual evil in this present world, Jesus has overcome. That's the point, right? Keeping Jesus at the center, that's the point. Jesus is the point. He's the one fighting on our behalf. And us, we get to be on the hill. We get to to be Aaron. We get to be Ur. We get to be brother and brother-in-law just worshiping our victor in the ring, praying for victory in the ring. These are guys that we see our story in, and honestly, maybe even a little nudge in as it relates to the point of worship. Why were these guys even there that day? The only answer that we get is that they just happen to have been there every day. Like, everywhere that Moses went, his brother and his brother-in-law went with him. I mean, they were there with him that day just because they were there with him every single day. They were there because they made a decision to be there every time. They were there because they pre-decided, listen, whenever this happens, we're going to show up. Jesus is our victor. Let's not take away from that at all. Our our encouragement coming into this week is worship happens. And these were the kind of guys that just decided, listen, I'm going to be there. I don't want to miss out on anything. If there's an amount of encouragement, I don't want to miss it. If there's an amount of challenging, I don't want to miss it. If God is going to move powerfully in the midst of our community, I am going to be a part of it. Pre-deciding to be there every single time. My heart, I would love for us to be that kind of church that just predecides. listen, I'm going to be there no matter what. We got a sense of this. I got a sense of just how incredibly powerful this was over the last couple of years. One, it was just wild and, you know, bananas. And, and there, was, there was like this level of hurt, this level of loneliness. People coming through the doors in isolation while experiencing divorce. And that's a new one. Because usually, that sort of thing, tragedy happens in community. And like for the first time ever, it wasn't. It was happening in isolation. And like how powerful it was. As people came through the doors and I knew a slice of their story. I got, I got to be a part of, the, part of the story because of my 
position and, and, and permission that I had, but you know, we didn't, not all of us. And how powerful it was for somebody to come through the door carrying the hurt, carrying the loneliness, carrying the pain, and having no idea somebody coming up and saying, I'm so glad that you're here today. And tears and a hug. And just how incredibly powerful showing up is. If we could be like Aaron, like her, and just make that predecision to show up, no matter what. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus is doing something so incredibly powerful in the fight. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on it. Life is a battle. We cannot win alone. Each weekend in this series, I'm going to share a picture, a metaphor about what the church could be like. It isn't always like this. I recognize that. Um, But I'm going to share a picture about what this church could be. And today I want to share the picture of... uh, of a gentleman in his, uh, in his mid-40s, and he's got a consistent four and a half decades of weekly worship under his belt. He's a part of the, part of the thing, has been for a long, long time. But one day, he's just, one day he quits. I'm done, yeah? Still believe in God, still believe in Jesus, still read the Bible, still pray. I'm just going to do this on my own instead of in community. And so he goes a stretch, and just doesn't show up to his little church. And the pastor eventually decides, I've got, got to do something, you know, reach out. Hey, can we, can we talk about it? Can we figure out what's going on here? And maybe, like, what, what God is doing in your heart and in your, in your life. And the guy uh, is like, all right, you know, come to my house Thursday. And the pastor shows up at his house, and the guy's in the backyard, and he's around a, a campfire. And the pastor shows up, and the two guys, they just have a seat next to each other, and they just watch the fire. A few minutes goes by, 10, 20 minutes goes by, another log on the fire, 30-minute mark. The pastor just grabs this stick, pokes it in the fire, picks up one of the, like, white-hot coals from deep into the fire's heart and just gently lays it on the cinder block just outside the fire on the rim. And the two men, the two men just watch as the, as the white hot coal fades to red, to orange, to gray, to black. And without saying a word, the pastor just stands up and shows himself out. The guy showed up to church the next week and he goes, last Thursday, it's the best sermon I ever heard. (laughs) It's powerful. It's powerful. Life is a battle. You can't win alone. Life is a battle. It might not even be your battle you're fighting life is a battle you've got a Joshua Yeshua Jesus in the ring fighting on your behalf
Each week, we're also going to share a story of a video message of somebody who's been impacted by each of these elements. Just want to invite you to hear Matt's story now. Uh, my name is Matt. I've been at a counter for, for nine years this fall. Um, married to my wife, Jill, who's a cool story. We actually got hooked up with Encounter. <clears throat> she was a nurse at Spectrum, and actually one of her patients recommended Encounter. So that's how we got started here at Encounter. Uh, we have two daughters together, Linnea, who's seven, and Violet, who's four. Worship is important to me because it helps me to recalibrate uh, my posture towards God um, in a way that maybe I'm coming off a stressful week at work. I'm focused on things that maybe don't matter as much. Um, and so it helps me to reorient my attention on what is important, um, the goodness of God in my life, um, the ways that he's provided for me and my family. And I know you know, those around us that are worshiping together on Sunday morning, we all face a different set of challenges, but we're all there to worship the same God for the same reason, which I think is, is beautiful. One of the Bible verses that I gravitated to when my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer was Psalm 16, and I've never deviated from that passage. I, I try to read it as much as I can, but <clears throat> the the verses uh, say, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure. Um, because you will not abandon me to the grave. Uh, baptism Sundays, um, just being up on the stage, I was fortunate enough and humbled enough that I could be up on the stage and be the top one of the towel wrappers to catch people after they come out of the tub. But in the meantime, being up on the stage, worshiping God, looking out, and then just seeing everybody celebrate after the person comes out of the water still dripping, people are cheering, praising God, and I just know that, you know, that same sentiment is echoed from heaven down to uh, just, just just to think of the, the amount of rejoicing that's happening in heaven over um, a decision that someone made for their own life to follow Jesus. It's incredible. So my hope for our church worship time together would be that that we would move closer to God in our time of worship. Um, our God, he's so dynamic that he demands a dynamic response and and maybe sometimes it might be out of our comfort zone. Maybe, maybe we're not a singer, maybe we don't lift our hands, but, but I would encourage people to take that step of faith in stretching themselves to be nearer to God in the worship process because as we draw near to him, he will also draw near to us. We have a Joshua, a Yeshua, a Jesus who fights the battles on our behalf. Church, I'd like to invite you to stand up as we lay ourselves before that Savior. Our Savior in heaven, our Lord, God, we come to you and, and we submit our all. We give ourselves over to you. And Lord, we want to we say that the answer is yes to whatever it is that you're asking us to do even before we know what the question is. Lord, may we be a people courageous enough to pre-decide. The answer is yes. Now, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? To whom do you want me to do life with? God, as we enter into a battle this week, a battle that we don't even know what it might be, 
may we be reminded that this, with outstretched arms, this is how we fight our battles. Not in the valley below, Lord, but it's on the hill watching you fight on our behalf. Jesus, we pray this in your resurrected name. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.